Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 398th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday as we begin a new year. Today's Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Erica, Happy New Year. Good morning, Chuck. Happy New Year to you and to everybody. Thank you very much. And so it is here, 2020. We're now 14 days into the new year. So, Erica, what's new? Well, I spent my break trying to get my provider modules ready to roll out very soon. Good luck with all of that. Uh, There's certainly some new changes in the coding world, as we're going to learn today from Gloria Ann Bryant. She's going to join us later in the broadcast. And a new change could be coming to Incident 2 Billing. Terry Fletcher will report that it could actually be going away, actually eliminated. Ooh, wow. That's something that's not going to change, of course, is climate change. That's not going to go away. Talk 10 Tuesday, resident psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffat joins us later in the broadcast to file the first in his exclusive reporting on how climate change change is affecting mental health. I know it's affecting mine. And then senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson returns to the broadcast, and she has the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. And you have a talkback segment today, and I'm intrigued because you mentioned Google Glass. Well, yeah, actually, I'm going to be talking about what's coming next in recording the patient encounter. Wow. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University Bookstore, reminding you that the must-have handbook, The 2020 Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity, is now available. Order yours today. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And last year, but just a month ago, the OIG released a study that should cause a chill of fear to run down the backs of hospital and Medicare Advantage plan leaders alike. First, you have to understand how risk scoring works and why hospital and Medicare Advantage plans could even collude to increase reimbursement for both of them. Medicare Advantage plans are reimbursed a base per patient day or PPD amount, adjusted for the individual weighted score computed using hierarchical condition codes or HCCs. CMS takes all the diagnosis codes submitted on paid claims and uses them to adjust how much they think a patient with those diagnosis codes should cost on a daily basis. Hospitals are paid based on the diagnostic related group based on the same diagnosis codes, and here's where it gets crazy. Since most contracts between hospitals and Medicare Advantage plans are based on Medicare's DRGs, both the hospital and the Medicare Advantage plan increase reimbursement by coding or maybe even overcoding certain diagnoses. Let's look at why the OIG did this in their own words. We took this study because of concerns that Medicare Advantage organizations, or MAOs, may use chart reviews to increase risk-adjusted payments inappropriately. Unsupported risk-adjusted payments are a major driver of improper payments to Medicare Advantage plans, which provide a coverage of up to 20 million beneficiaries in 2018 at a cost of $210 billion. What is the OIG talking about with chart reviews to increase reimbursement to the Medicare Advantage plans? 
Most plans have a team of risk adjustment auditors that review claims using suspect data analysis. The plans look at billings from the last Medicare Advantage plan for patients, medications the patients may be taking, and computer modeling to see if the patient is really sicker than the bill claims data shows. If they confirm that the patient may have other diagnoses that's not listed in the bill data, they notify the providers asking them to rebuild the claims with new diagnosis found during the quote-unquote audit. Good news for the plan and good news for the provider in most cases, it's bad news for Medicare. This is how the OIG described their audit process. We analyzed 2016 MA encounter data to determine the 2017 financial impact of diagnoses reported only on chart reviews and not on any service record in the encounter data that year. We also analyzed CMS's response to a structured questionnaire to identify action taken by CMS to review the impact of the chart reviews on MA payments. So what did the OIG find? The OIG states that our findings highlight potential issues to the extent to which chart reviews are leveraged by MAOs and overseen by CMS. Based on our analysis of MA encounter data, we found that MAOs almost always use chart reviews to add as a tool to add rather than delete diagnoses in over 99% of the chart reviews in our review added diagnoses. In addition, diagnoses that MAOs reported only on chart reviews and not on service records resulted in an additional $6.7 billion in risk adjustment payments in 2017. CMS based an estimate of $2.7 billion on risk adjustment payments on chart review diagnosis that the MAO did not link to a specific service provided to the beneficiary, much less a face-to-face -face visit. So what should hospitals do? We think hospitals should perform regular coding audits and compare the findings between Medicare Advantage and standard Medicare and other managed care payers. We specifically think that providers need to request the results of coding audits performed by Medicare Advantage plans and to notify the compliance officer of the hospital of any changes made by the plan to data. Providers should also make sure that the contracts with MA plans require the plan to, to disclose the result of any claim audits they perform. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. This is Tuesday. It's January 14th, and you're listening to the 398th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. The first Talk 10 Tuesday for 2020. Stand by. How much are wound debridement coding mistakes costing your organization? You might be shocked at the answer. Wound debridement involves multiple variables, procedure site, type of debridement, wound surface area, instruments and techniques used, nature of the removed tissue, and more. All play a role in the correct assignment of ICD-10-CM and CPT codes as well as modifier usage. It's little wonder that auditors have observed widespread coding mistakes that lead to substantial money left on the table and, in other instances, severe financial penalties due to over-reporting. An important webcast on this topic, led by acclaimed coding and auditing expert Terry Fletcher, is now available on demand. Check it out at the ICD University Bookstore. Save $25 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY. Here now is Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. Have you noticed how many people are ill this winter? The CDC estimates that 9.7 million flu cases have been treated. There were 87,000 flu-related hospitalizations and 4,800 flu-related deaths. Flu is currently at high activity in 33 states, 
based on the January 4th report. 46 states are reporting some type of flu activity, and New Hampshire is reporting minimal activity. The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Director, Dr. Anthony Fossey, has reported that the current flu season could be as severe as the 2017-2018 season, which was the deadliest in 40 years. There has been 32 pediatric-related deaths due to flu as of January 4th. This is the highest level of pediatric death since the rate was monitored beginning 17 years ago. And we've seen reports of a, a little girl that was blinded due to the flu. Flu symptoms include fever or feeling feverish or chills, cough, sore throat, runny or stuffed nose, muscle or body aches, headaches, fatigue, vomiting or diarrhea. People may not experience all of the symptoms with the flu. Complications include pneumonia, sinus and ear infections, myocarditis, encephalitis, myositis, rhabdomyolysis, and multiple organ failure. The the flu can make chronic illnesses worse, such as asthma or chronic heart disease. If you are over 65, pregnant, or under 5 years of age, you are at high risk for the flu. If you have chronic diseases such as asthma, diabetes, or heart disease, you are also at high risk. If you haven't received your flu shot, which we code as Z23, it is not too late. It takes about two weeks to develop full immunity. The most common circulating viruses have been influenza B or Victoria, coded as J10.1, or A, H1N1, which is also coded as J10.1. Don't forget to code the associated pleural effusion or sinusitis and any associated tobacco exposure, dependence, abuse, or use. We are currently in the peak season, which is December to February of the flu season. If you'd like to avoid the flu, get vaccinated. Again, Z23. Avoid sick people. If you are sick with a fever, stay home for at least 24 hours after the fever is broken. Wash your hands with soap and water. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth as this is how germs are spread. And disinfect surfaces. So I hope everybody out there will work on avoiding the flu. And again, don't forget to get your flu shot if you haven't gotten it yet. So back to you, Erica. Thanks for the public service announcement, Lori. That's Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, Incident 2 billing could be going away. Here now with the details is nationally recognized professional physician, coder, and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. So the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, also known as MedPAC, released its June 2019 report to Congress on June 14. The report included a recommendation to eliminate Incident 2 billing for PAs, advanced practice registered nurses, and nurse practitioners under the Medicare program. Why did they recommend this? Because this privilege, which enables a limited licensed practitioner, so again, PA, nurse practitioner, advanced practice provider, to bill under a physician and be paid at the full physician fee schedule rather than 85%, is continually abused and billed incorrectly. As a result, CMS is considering eliminating the ability to bill for APPs, the incident to provisions, at the urging of MedPAC. But before we debate whether or not MedPAC has a point at their urging, 
what is required to bill under Incident 2 provision for the current Medicare regulations. Keep in mind that these rules apply to Part B patients only. If a, Medi- if a patient is Medicaid, Medicare Advantage, or is not a Medicare patient, the rules for that patient's insurance must be determined before billing Incident 2. Do not assume that the payer follows Medicare's rules. So first, the service is provided in a physician's office. Incident 2 services may not be provided in a facility, such as a hospital or SNF. Next, the NPP is following a plan of care established by the patient's physician. This means that if the plan of care is changed, so changing the patient's prescription, the plan of care is no longer being followed, and the visit no longer applies under the Incident 2 billing. The NPP is under direct supervision of a physician. This means there needs to be a physician in the office suite and immediately available. It does not mean there needs to be a physician on a different floor of the same building or in a hospital attached to the office building or available by phone. They must be in the office suite, the same as where the NPP is when Incident 2 services are provided. The Incident 2 service is billed under the supervising physician in the office on the date of the encounter of the encounter and may not necessarily be the patient's physician who developed the plan of care. Now this can be risky business because incident two, uh, there are ways to violate the incident two rules and without an audit, your Medicare carrier won't know that the rules have been violated since your claim for an incident two service just looks exactly like a claim for, from the supervising physician. Audits are triggered when CMS sees a significant number of single services or I should say services for a single physician because both the provider and the NPP are billing under the physician's national provider number or identifier, NPI. Another fatal error is billing incident two under the the patient's physician and not under the physician that was supervising for that encounter. There's also no modifier or other method to indicate that the claim is coming from an incident two provider. United Healthcare has created their own modifier, SA, so they can track usage, but Medicare for right now has not done that. Because it's difficult to manage the correct billing of incident two services, Some practices have made a decision to accept the 15% loss for the few true incident two services and always bill APP services under the own NPI of that provider. That way, they do not have to worry about complying with all the billing requirements. The use of incident two billing is optional, and services under PAs, nurse practitioners, and advanced practice providers can always be billed under their own uh, NPI as authorized by state law. Documentation must establish incident two billing requirements. Services meeting all of the CMS requirements may be billed under the supervising physician's NPI as if the physician personally performed the service. Documentation should detail who performed the service and that a supervising physician was in the office suite at the time of the service. So for example, a general practitioner diagnoses a Medicare patient with hypertension and diabetes at the patient's initial encounter and creates a plan of care. When the patient returns for a follow-up visit a few weeks later with the nurse practitioner, the patient now complains of left leg pain and swelling. Although the physician is in the office, the nurse practitioner evaluates and treats the patient for the new problem of lower extremity edema and refers the patient to the cardiologist. The physician, again, did not see the patient. This would not be billed under incident two because the physician did not see the patient and perform the initial service. And also the um, NP, even if they saw the other problems that were originally created, that still would not fall under incident two because of the new problem that was addressed. So MedPAC has seen this non-compliance to the tune of millions of dollars in overpayments and the continued potential for incorrect billing. But they do not have the ability to create uh, new or change existing Medicare policies. They are an independent congressional agency that advises Congress on the wide variety of healthcare policy issues regarding the Medicare program. 
The responsibility of change rests with Congress, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. As you can see, there are many areas where claims do not meet the criteria for incident two, and this is a huge monetary impact for Medicare. So to realize the benefits of incident two, you must follow the rules precisely. There are seven basic incident two rules and requirements, and you can see that in Medicare policy, uh, benefit policy manual chapter 15. Also read up on my article on ICD10monitor.com. Thank you, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Terry, thank you very much. And you can read Terry Fletcher's report on why Incident 2 billing could be going away in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Could climate change have an impact on mental health? Nationally renowned psychiatrist and author, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, thinks so. And today, here on Talk 10 Tuesday, Dr. Moffick files his first report in an exclusive series on the impact of climate change on healthcare. Here now with part one in his exclusive series for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday is Talk 10 Tuesday resident psychiatrist, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Good morning, Dr. Moffick. Thank you again for this great series. Morning, everybody. Now, Chuck, as we try to start the year 2020, hopefully with 2020 vision, let us in healthcare resolve to provide information on climate-related conditions. These conditions have been so recently recognized in psychiatry that there's nothing yet reflected in the ICD-10. And yet, people are already suffering mentally in a variety of ways. Understanding their suffering can lead to helpful interventions. These new conditions include pre-traumatic stress, climate-related anxiety, climate-related dysphoria, ecological grief, climate activist burnout, climate-related suicide, and perhaps the most intriguing one of all, solastalgia. But before we get to solastalgia, let's discuss a psychological process that not only sounds like it, that is nostalgia, but is also related in another environmental way. Nostalgia was actually a diagnosable medical condition in some countries for almost 300 years until the middle of the last century. A Swiss physician first defined it as a sickness caused by an intense desire to return home. Common symptoms were sadness and heart palpitations. Fast forward to the beginning of the new millennium, when an Australian environmental philosopher named Glenn Albrecht started to see and study what he thought was a related psychological problem. Australia was becoming one of the earliest countries to be adversely affected by global warming and the ensuing droughts. At the same time, open-air coal mining was emerging with its contribution to both carbon emissions and the desecration of beloved landscapes. For a variety of reasons, people often could not move. That seemed to be a kind of nostalgia, not for the past, but for the present, a homesickness while at home, with a painful loss of environmental solace, which was translated into the term solastalgia. Now we have the heartbreaking, unprecedented wildfires in Australia. So far, the estimate is a billion, yes, a billion, dead animals, especially the cute koalas, kangaroos, and wallabies that we have sadly seen on the news. An example in the USA may be the residents who can't leave the paradise lost of burned-down Paradise, California. As the climate change of beloved environments expands to more places, the prevalence of solastalgia increases around the world. Of course, we should not forget that some people in some places may, in contrast, like the climate change due to the warming and some new economic opportunities. Actually, both nostalgia and solastalgia can develop after the same event. In New Orleans, following Hurricane Katrina, those who left this unique city and never returned 
often suffered from nostalgia, while those who couldn't leave and saw their environment transformed adversely often developed solastalgia. Interestingly enough, the medical insight that connects human health and the health environment goes all the way back to the time of our great medical ethicist, Hippocrates of the Hippocratic Oath, who said, quote, whoever wishes to investigate medicine properly should proceed just in the first place to consider the season of the year, then the winds, the quality of the waters. In the same manner, when one comes into a city to which he is a stranger, he ought to consider its situation how it lies to the winds and the rising of the sun, end of quote. We are only now, unfortunately, just catching up on this insight of Hippocrates, and you are helping us to do so, Chuck. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Dr. Moffick. That was nationally prominent psychiatrist and author, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Be sure to read Dr. Moffick's first report in his exclusive series in today's edition of ICD-10 Monitor News. And coming up next, how the coding world is rapidly changing in 2020. That's when Gloria and Brian joins us in 60 seconds from now. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. High-quality clinical documentation plays an essential role in getting paid correctly and improving patient outcomes. The new 2020 edition of the Clinical Documentation Integrity Book measures up to this critical function. This must-have book uses a three-step approach that covers possible clinical indicators, risk factors, and treatments, enabling effective chart reviews and physician queries. The 2020 Clinical Documentation Integrity Handbook is divided into major diagnostic categories, integrating coding rules and guidelines, DRG assignments, breakdowns of ICD-10 codes, and high-risk DRGs. In addition, solidify your knowledge through case studies, anatomy, and physiology lessons with at-a-glance reference aids, diagrams, and much more. It's the ideal training tool for both new and seasoned CDI specialists. Order your book today at the ICD University Bookstore. This morning, our lead story is about the coding world in 2020. It's a new landscape of challenges for coders and him professionals alike. To help you and your team prepare for what lies ahead in 2020, here's Gloria Ann Bryan. She joins us now with her coding report. Good morning, Gloria Good morning. Thank you, Chuck, and hello to all, and Happy New Year. As we look ahead, it's always wise to think about the areas that may be challenging for us in this new year, especially in the clinical coding world. In my recent article, I mentioned severe sepsis, social determinants of health, vaping, lung-related disease, AHA coding clinic, risk adjustment, HCCs, we heard a little bit about that, coding compliance, as 2020 areas of potential challenge and we need to keep our watch on. The area of sepsis will continue to be one that we need to pay attention to, where currently we have recommendations for changes around the ICD-10-CM classification of severe sepsis. And due to the sepsis-3 elimination of that term being redundant. So we need to stay informed and watch the news in this area to keep vital our coding accuracy and data integrity in that area in particular. Social determinants of health, I'm seeing many articles and lots of news around these, and even a full healthcare summits are being dedicated to this topic. I strongly encourage all our listeners to review the current guidelines around the Z55 through the Z65 codes for social determinant of health, developed internal coding policy. So we report these conditions. And listening to Dr. Moffitt, I think of social determinants of health codes that could be related to uh, the 
um, change in, in um, our atmosphere and the weather and so on. So I think we might see more attention around the SDOH, the social determinants of health. But let's get that data, so start using those codes. Now, another hot topic in the news that we saw for several months and we're going to continue in 2020 is vaping and the related lung injury and disease that we're seeing. According to the CDC, about 6.2 million U.S. middle and high school students current in the past 30-day users of some type of tobacco product in 2019, according to the National Youth Tobacco Survey that was released in the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report from the CDC. And so we know that the younger people population are using these products. We also saw a recent announcement by the Centers for uh, Health Statistics last month for a new ICD-10-CM code for vaping-related disorder, U07.0, to be implemented on April 1st of 2020. And clinical coding professionals need to be aware of this new code so they can start using it appropriately. And coding clinic, I mentioned this to you as a, a hot spot and to something to keep watch on for 2020. I can't tell you how many times I've discovered that coding and CDI professionals are not keeping up with the AHA coding clinic for ICD-10 CMPCS. Coding clinic guidance assists not only coding and CDI professional, but others, educators, auditors, insurance, and, and providers. And each quarter, the publication provides insight into a variety of clinical coding scenarios and challenging situations. Having access to this publication and then reading through it fully, I emphasize full, content is something we need to put on our goals for 2020. And then we have the HCCs. We heard a little bit about that in that Medicare Advantage area. So we need to stay on top of that in 2020, both from a perspective of compliance in this area and certainly from coding integrity. And then overall coding compliance and integrity for 2020. We know that we're under regulatory scrutiny. The Office of the Inspector General is looking at a lot of areas. Encourage you, you, I encourage you to have audits at education, repeat, audits and education, and look at these target areas that the OIG publishes reports on, then we can narrow in. We heard about, obviously, our Medicare Advantage area. We need to be auditing there. We need to be educating in there. And so for 2020, I think we have several areas we need to focus on. If we want to result in positive coding compliance outcome, we need to put these on our list, put them on our targets, and start working on them. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Glorianne. That was Glorianne Bryant. Glorianne is a well-known national coding and HIM leader. Now is the time for a popular segment here at Talk Down Tuesdays called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. When I do my Case Western Reserve University documentation course, I sometimes joke about the future when we won't need to document at all because the entire encounter will be videotaped for posterity. Last month, I had to update my EMR is here to stay talk in response to some articles I saw, and I thought you would find it interesting. Originally, this EMR presentation included its description of compliant scribe utilization. July 2017, I did a talk back about scribes after a visit to my podiatrist's office, during which I was informed that some of the providers use a virtual scribe service. I was intrigued with the concept. A remote scribe witnesses the encounter through Google Glasses and documents it for the provider in real time. 
Last month, I saw two articles describing a new service of recording an encounter using speech-to-text technology. One described Amazon transcribed medical and one detailed Cerner's offering, but the article also mentioned that Microsoft and Google have their own versions. I have not seen any of them firsthand, nor am I endorsing any product. Subsequently, I attended a funeral where my husband's entrepreneurial cousin told me about a business endeavor where they are recording orthopedist office visits and developing technology to assign codes and bill based on the transcribed encounter. I advised him that the most important element would be for the provider to spell out verbally the medical decision-making and diagnoses. I think there is value to verbalizing our clinical findings and detailing our impressions in the presence of the patient. It gives them an understanding of the extent of what we are doing and how much thought goes into our decisions. It gives them the opportunity to share in the decision-making. Medical decision-making should incorporate the history and the physical examination, the data and the imaging, into the diagnoses and plan. That is how we care for patients, and it is critical to document it so in case the provider dies in a car accident or wins the lottery and leaves clinical practice, the next provider can know why they were doing what they were doing to advance the patient's care. Barring unforeseen changes in CMS's plans, MDM, medical decision-making, is also likely to be the key on which component-based billing is going to hinge. Full disclosure, I support that. I think that the history and physical examinations serve the MDM, and that providers get paid for their analysis and synthesis of the information, not how many systems they review or body parts they examine and find normal. But if the provider doesn't document, or in this case, verbalize their thought process, the MDM will be unrecognized and not credited. If using an encounter to chart technology, the clinician will need to read through the transcription for accuracy. Studies show that voice recognition yields an error rate of 7.4%, which is decreased by review of the transcriptionist and reduced even further to a 0.3% error rate when the clinician does a final pass. Providers should never abdicate this responsibility. A missed negative word can change the entire meaning and outcome. I appreciate and am supportive of wanting to minimize burden on the documenting provider. However, we must keep in mind that the goal is to take excellent care of the patient. The reason we document is, hopefully, because someone else is going to be reading and acting on what we have recorded. I question how efficient the system can be if the provider doesn't consider what needs to be in the record at the expense of the poor end user having to sift through a lot of extraneous chit-chat and irrelevant verbiage to extract the information. Finally, I can foresee this degrading the capture of risk-adjusting comorbidities similar to what the implementation of the electronic medical record did. We need to keep mentation in documentation. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 398th edition of Tucked In Tuesday. This is our first live broadcast of 2020, and I want to thank our panelists today, Glorianne Bryant, Terry Pletcher, Lori Johnson, Dr. H. Stephen Moffat, Tim Powell, and, of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And be with us next Tuesday. That's when our special guest will be the new president and board chair for AHIMA. That's Gina Evans. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for IC the 10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD 10 Monitor.